This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association and hosted by Dr. Victor Nitti, Chair of the Office of Education. This podcast was originally recorded on February 18th, 2016. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to this AUA Office of Education podcast on tips and tricks and challenges of endourology and stone management. I would also like to introduce my co-host, Dr. Manoj Manga, who is the director of the Stephen Stream Center of Endourology and Stone Disease at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, and is also the secretary of the American Urological Association. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss um, interventions such as ureteroscopy. We'll talk a little bit about the use of stents, some tips and tricks for ureteroscopy, as well as for shockwave lithotripsy and percutaneous nephrostolithotomy. And we'll finish up talking about dietary management. Dr. Manga, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Vic. Uh, thanks for having me here today. All right. Well, I think I would like to start out uh, by talking a little bit about ureteral stents, as it uh, is often a topic of conversation about uh, when to use stents and how we can minimize discomfort uh, and such. So when is it typical uh, for you to use a stent uh, in general and uh, perhaps uh, after ureteroscopy? So ureteral stents have really been a boom for urologists and for patients, offering a safe and effective way to provide drainage of the upper urinary tract. They're typically used in one of two situations. One would be temporary drainage for a ureteral stone that's causing obstruction in hydro. And the second utilization would be for patients with more chronic issues, such as a benign ureteral stricture or malignant obstruction. Focusing on the more common use, which would be for ureteral stones, we would typically place it for about five to seven days after an uncomplicated ureteroscopy. In contrast, if the patient presents with infection and needs a stent placed temporarily prior to treating the stone, we would typically wait about two weeks before proceeding with a staged ureteroscopy after stent placement. Is there a time where you would uh, perhaps perform a ureteroscopy and not leave a stent? We would typically uh, consider not leaving a stent for a distal ureteral stone that is removed with ease and where there is little evidence of edema or trauma to the ureter at the end of the procedure. We'll more commonly leave a stent for any procedure where we use a ureteral access sheet or if the stone is larger or in the proximal ureter. So if, if you had a stone, oh, let's say it's a distal ureteral stone, three millimeters versus seven or eight millimeters, uh, but the ureteroscopy is relatively uncomplicated, does that stone size make a difference in your decision to leave a stent? For both those patients, we would counsel them before the surgery on the option of trying ureteroscopy without a stent. We tell them that if we didn't leave a stent, they would have a one in 10 chance of coming back to the emergency room with significant renal colic. In contrast, if we did leave a stent, 80% of patients will have some cramping in the kidney and bladder. 
typically those patients who've had a stent before will say, don't leave a stent if you don't really need to. The stone size will likely lead to a higher risk of needing a stent because the ureteroscopy may be more complicated. So while there's no strict cutoff for not considering an unstented ureteroscopy, at the end of your ureteroscopy for a seven or eight millimeter stone, more than likely there will be more edema or the stone may have been more impacted and we may be more likely to require a stent as opposed to that smaller stone that you described. Is there any stent size or anything else about the stent material or design that minimizes stent pain? There's been a lot of work to try to find the ideal stent, one that would be a silent partner for the patient and the surgeon. A stent that would provide drainage without causing pain, and unfortunately, there isn't the magical stent that is a silent partner. We use a, a, a barred Optimus stent. It has some qualities that in the lab at least, that suspect there will be a lower risk of incrustation. We use a 7 French stent for all patients, except a 4.7 French stent will be stocked for pediatric patients or those with a very tight ureter. Anything that you do typically to minimize pain during stent placement or uh, minimize pain or discomfort after stent placement? The first step is intra-op, to really pick the best size of stent for the patient and also pay close attention to where it's placed. There have been some studies to suggest that having the renal coil positioned in the renal pelvis as opposed to the upper pole will lead to less flank pain. And similarly, making sure that the bladder coil does not cross the midline will lead to less bladder pain. The second step is to take out the stent when it's not needed. For us, after an uncomplicated ureteroscopy, this typically means five to seven days. And then the third measure is to use an alpha blocker for patients with stents. Large meta-analyses of almost a thousand patients show improved pain, improved quality of life with the use of an alpha blocker when a ureteral stent is in place. Secondary measures that perhaps don't have as high quality evidence would include anticholinergics, or non-steroidals, but we initially start only with an alpha blocker. So when you talk about stent size and minimizing discomfort, it's really more about stent length and appropriate stent length than it is uh, the uh, diameter of the stent. Exactly. Last question regarding stents is, is there anything that you do to prevent pain after stent removal? So surprisingly, about a third of patients will have significant pain after stent removal, probably something that most urologists, including myself, don't appreciate. That pain may last for one to two days. We counsel the patient now that they may have some pain, setting their expectations such that they're not surprised. If we see a fair amount of edema at the ureter orifice at the time of stent removal, will use an injection of toradol followed by two to three days of oral toradol to try to alleviate this inflammation. And we encourage patients to continue their alpha blockers for 48 hours after the stent comes out. Great. 
Well, let's move on to some tips and tricks for ureteroscopy. And I remember when I was training, uh, there was no such thing as a flexible ureteroscope and we had rather large, rigid ureteroscopes, but that was a while ago and certainly technology has changed a lot. So when do you decide to use uh, uh, flexible or se semi-rigid ureteroscopy uh, versus flexible ureteroscopy? So we'll typically make a list of the equipment that we think we'll need at the beginning of the procedure. And for every ureteroscopy, even if the stone is in the distal ureter, we'll have a flexible scope available in the event that fragments wash up to the kidney. We'll typically start off every case with a semi-rigid ureteroscopy, even if the target stone is in the kidney. The semi-rigid ureteroscope has a few advantages. The first is it allows us to visib visibly clear the ureter of any unsuspected pathology. For example, a stone may have migrated down into the ureter since the imaging was obtained. It also dilates the intramural ureter to facilitate the placement of a ureteral stent. And we use the semi-rigid to place our second wire under direct vision, which saves us a bit of money in terms of not having to open a dual lumen catheter. The flexible ureteroscope we shift to at any point in time where it becomes challenging to advance the semi-rigid ureteroscope. Typically, we can get up to the renal pelvis in a woman, but sometimes in a man, it may be difficult to get beyond the mid-ureter. You know, uh, obviously, there is uh, a cost involved to uh, purchasing and maintenance of ureteroscopes. Um, for those in whom it matters, how does one consider the types of ureteroscopes to purchase, um, what kind of maintenance plans, et cetera? There's been an evolution in flexible ureteroscopes from a rapid decline in size to a gradual increase in size, especially for the shaft, with the hope of increasing the durability. Currently, it's a fairly level playing field with regards to the fiber optic flexible ureteroscopes. All of them are susceptible to damage. And unfortunately, the digital flexible ureteroscopes are similarly susceptible to damage. So currently, the selection of which ureteroscope to purchase is not necessarily driven by the durability, but rather the optics and the maneuverability. So, you know, I've heard a lot recently about um, dusting versus fragmenting of stones. We saw that on the, uh, at the plenary at last year's uh, annual meeting. Can you tell me a little bit about dusting versus fragmenting and when one may choose one technique over another? So there is uh, a fairly evenly split sentiment among endurologists in terms of whether dusting is the best approach or basketing. The advantage of dusting is there's probably a little bit less risk of a serious injury to the ureter, as the risk of avulsion typically occurs when one baskets a large stone. However, the risk of avulsion is probably about one in a thousand. So the question might be, is one compromising the success of the surgery by choosing dusting? A recent study performed by the EDGE research group has demonstrated that the risk of significant residual fragments with dusting is about 30% compared to around 10% with fragmenting. So it does appear that though dusting theoretically might have some safety advantages, does lead to an increased chance of residual stones. If one places uh, yourself in the position of the patient, they've probably been given the choice of shockwave or ureteroscopy. And in our hands, they'll probably pick ureteroscopy if they don't want to pass the pieces, if they want to know they're stone free. 
So in essence, the patient has already picked a basketer as opposed to a duster. In addition to that, sometimes the stone will tell you does it need to be dusted or basketed based on the hardness of the stone. A soft stone might crumble and you will be end up dusting it even if you went in with the intent of fragmenting and basketing. Similarly, a hard stone might fragment into larger pieces that you might feel reluctant to leave at the end of a dusting procedure. Lastly, we will tend to use a dusting procedure if the ureter was tight, if we had difficulty getting a ureteral access sheath in, or if we are performing a ureteroscopy without a ureteral access sheath. In those situations, we would tend to dust the stone as opposed to basket. So now as you get ready to do your ureteroscopy, well, let, let's say it's for a stone or really for any indication, what are sort of the essential instruments that you want to have available to you so that there's, uh, you know, nothing missing if, if the case goes sort of as expected or has um, a few little bumps along the way? So uh, again, on our whiteboard in the operating room, we'll make a list. We'll have on the left-hand side the list of equipment to open that we know we'll need. And on the right side of the board, we'll have a list of the things that we may need. I find it helpful to make this list at the beginning of every case because it's also a bit of a, a mental exercise, going through the steps and anticipating what might go wrong. For example, if we have an impacted stone, on the left-hand side, we would have a sensor wire, a semi-rigid ureteroscope, a... Uh, a seal to place on the port of the ureteroscope along with an irrigation system. On the right hand side we might have a 5 French open-ended catheter, a hydrophilic wire such as a Trumo glide wire, some contrast in the event that our sensor wire does not go up easily. So by having the equipment on the board anticipating what might go wrong once prepared not only with regards to having the equipment ready but also having in your mind a plan if something goes awry. Now, do you always image your patients after your ureteroscopy, and if so, when do you usually do that? The AUA white paper on imaging after ureteroscopy re recommends imaging every patient. They recommend using an ultrasound for uncomplicated ureteroscopy and adding a KUB to the ultrasound if fragmentation of the stone was required. We tend to use a more selective approach will only image patients where the ureteroscopy was complicated. Really what one's looking for with imaging after ureteroscopy is silent obstruction. We found that silent obstruction only occurs in those patients who had a complicated ureteroscopy, which could be defined as an impacted stone or difficulty reaching the stone or the need for balloon dilation. One of those three things occurs in about 5% of patients. So in our hands, we can avoid imaging in 95% of patients while imaging those 5% where the risk of solid obstruction is really there. Let's move on to shockwave lithotripsy. First of all, how, um, how common is it today compared to perhaps where it was a few years ago? Uh, and how do you pick the right patient for shockwave over, let's say, uh, ureteroscopy or PCNL? There has been a decline in shockwave lithotripsy across the world, whether one looks at ABU's case logs from the United States or similar numbers from Canada or England. All of these show a slight decline in shockwave 
corresponding with a slight increase in ureteroscopy. I suspect most of this is driven by improved patient selection. We've started to understand more of the limitations with regards to shockwave and appreciated the advantages of CT scan imaging to help delineate which patients are best suited for shockwave and which patients may be more amenable to an endoscopic procedure. Another change perhaps driving the shift from shockwave to ureteroscopy is the number of patients we get who are anticoagulated for cardiac issues. Ureteroscopy has been demonstrated to be a safe and effective procedure in an anticoagulated patient, whereas it's a contraindication for shockwave. With regards to the CT scan, the way it helps delineate which patient is appropriate for shockwave is identifying the size, location, hardness, and depth of the stone. Those four parameters can be used to tailor the success rate that's quoted to the patient and help the patient decide which surgery is best for them. If you had to pick your ideal shockwave lithotripsy candidate, who would that be? The ideal patient would be a stone 10 millimeters or smaller, location in the renal pelvis or upper pole, a Hounsby unit density 1,000 or less, and skin to stone distance 10 centimeters or less. Beyond that ideal patient, there is a range where it's appropriate to consider, but not, might not be ideal. We typically don't recommend shockwave if the Hounsby units is greater than 1,200, or if the skin to stone distance is greater than 12 centimeters. My next question was going to be how to optimize success, and I think you pretty much uh, stated it in the answer to uh, to the previous question. Anything else that you you might do during the procedure or after the procedure to optimize a successful result? So certainly, as you allude to, selecting the right patient is the first step. But there are things that can be done during the shockwave to optimize outcomes. The first is to pay close attention to the coupling of the patient to the shockwave therapy head. It's recommended that if one's using a gel-based coupling system to put a big blob of gel on the treatment head and raise the treatment head onto the back of the patient. If one uses your hand to spread the gel on the treatment head or on the back of the patient, there will be more air pockets and air pockets will decrease the efficiency of transmission of the energy of the shockwave. The second step is to ramp up the energy level start at a low KV, and every 100 shocks or so gradually increase the energy to your target energy setting. This will improve fragmentation and decrease the risk of renal trauma. And lastly, it's important to treat at a slow rate. Treating at a slow rate improves fragmentation, and we typically gate the patient to their heart rate, that way we're getting not only a slow rate, but a decreased risk of arrhythmias. How about uh, after the procedure? Is there anything that you would do afterwards to optimize success? So after the procedure, we typically see the patients two weeks later with a KUB. We instruct them to strain their urine to wash for stone passage. We counsel them beforehand that there's probably about a one in a hundred chance that they may have significant renal colic that would require them to come to the emergency room and be imaged and potentially need a stent. With regards to optimizing stone passage, we use an alpha blocker in all patients. 
Again, the level of evidence is fairly high to show that alpha bucklers help with the expulsion of stone fragments. Lastly, if they come back to us two weeks later and there's residual stones in the lower pole, we will instruct them on inversion and percussion, having them lie with their heads down at about a 30 to 45 degree angle and having one of their friends or relatives tap them on their back for about 10 to 15 minutes each day to try to help jog those stones out of the lower pole. Is there a particular uh, shockwave machine that, uh, that you favor, uh, and if so, why? There's been a lot of discussion about a decline in the quality of lithotrippers since the initiation with the Dornier HM3. There have been some case match studies to suggest that lithotrippers actually still work fairly well, indeed compar comparative to the old machines. We use the Stortz Modulith for a few reasons. The first is it has a large surface area through which the energy comes into the skin. And this helps us use the machine using fairly light conscious sedation. The second thing is the coupling mechanism is with water as opposed to gel. And I believe this may improve the efficiency of transmission of the energy. All right, well, let's move on to uh... Uh, percutaneous nephrostolithotomy, or PCNL, uh, something that I was uh, uh, very glad to see as we ran uh, several hands-on courses in 2015 through the Office of Education. Um, they all sold out, so this is obviously um, a treatment modality that many urologists are interested in uh, performing and interested uh, in becoming expert in. Um, who's the right patient to do a PCNL on versus, let's say, ureteroscopy or uh, shockwave? Traditionally, 20 millimeters has been considered a cutoff for considering PCNL. We've dropped that number to about 15 millimeters, partly because our ability to perform PCNLs with low morbidity has improved and partly because we've recognized the increased limitations of not only shockwave, but also ureteroscopy for larger renal stones. So we'll consider PCNL for anyone with a stone greater than 15 millimeters in size. Interestingly, those ABU case logs say that only about 4% of patients with stones get a PCNL in the United States. In comparison, about 10% of patients in Canada uh, receive PCNL as opposed to other surgical therapies. So there may be an opportunity to reconsider the limitations that are used in the United States uh, for PCNL. With what regards the, to other I'm sorry, the other uh, no, you, you go ahead. It might include patients who have uh, distal obstruction. So distal obstruction could include a UPJ obstruction, a ureteral stricture, things that might make it difficult for stone fragments to pass after shockwave or difficult to perform ureteroscopy. A calocele diverticulum would be another indication for PCNL. And indeed, patients with lower urinary tract obstruction, BPH or other issues, urethral stricture disease, or urinary diversion, all those may be relative indications to consider PCNL as opposed to shockwave or ureteroscopy for even smaller stones. So what are the major risks of PCNL, and what do you do to try and minimize those risks? We counsel patients that there's a 5% risk of transfusion, a 1% chance of embolization, and a 1% chance of needing a chest tube. 
to try to minimize those risks, the first step is getting the most accurate puncture that one can. I believe the accuracy of the puncture is the most critical thing to avoid risk compared to other things that are discussed such as the size of the tracks and so forth. The accuracy of the puncture is most important. To try to improve the accuracy, the first thing is to carefully review the CT scan, looking for the uh, relation of the other organs to the kidney, such as the spleen, the liver, the colon, and the pleural reflection. This will help identify the best calyx to puncture, and it might also identify patients more suited to access by a radiologist using ultrasound or CT guidance, as opposed to fluoroscopic guided C uh, puncture. The other way to improve the accuracy of the puncture is to do an endoscopic guided PCNL using a flexible ureteroscope to identify the exact calyx to enter and using the tip of the ureteroscope as a target for your needle. Any particular tips on positioning patients uh, for PCNL? We typically place our patients in a prone split leg position because we do favor the endoscopic approach for guiding the site of the puncture. There's been a lot written with regards to supine PCNL. Supine PCNL is probably most in favor in South America and Europe. Studies have shown that the ability to ventilate the patient is really not much different whether the patient is prone or supine. And the supine PCNL is somewhat of a misnomer. It's a modified supine position that requires a fair amount of time to position and pad the patient for safety. Other studies have shown that the supine PCNL leads to a longer renal tract, and a longer renal tract makes it more challenging to manipulate the nephroscope. For these reasons and others, we stick with a prone position using the split leg to allow us to perform ureteroscopy from below at the same time as PCNL. What, what type of tubes do you generally use uh, after PCNL, from nephrostomy tube to is there anybody that you would put a ureteral stent in? Um, how do you handle that post-procedure? Once again, there is a large body of evidence to support a tubeless PCNL. Introduced initially back in 1997 by Dr. Bellman, now uh, meta-analyses with over 1,000 patients show decreased pain and decreased hospital stay with a tubeless approach. Again, tubeless is a bit of a misnomer because most of the studies use a ureteral stent. So though they may not have a nephrostomy tube, they will typically have a ureteral stent for about five to seven days. So all of our patients, whether they have bleeding or not, whether there's residual stones or not, receive a tubeless PCNL with a ureteral stent. One might ask, well, what do you do about the patients with residual stones? will typically perform a staged ureteroscopy two weeks after the PCNL. We find this more effective and less expensive than a second look uh, nephroscopy. Is there any time that you would leave a nephrostomy tube after a PCNL? We leave a nephrostomy tube after a PCNL only if the patient requests that we do. We explain to the patients that in our hands, the pain and the bleeding is less with a stent but if they've had a prior uh, adverse event with a ureteral stent, if they've had significant stent discomfort in the past, a few patients will request a nephrostomy tube, in which case we'll leave a small pigtail catheter, typically about a 10.3 French. 
Well, we've spoke, spoken a lot about uh, surgical techniques uh, for the management of uh, uh, stones. Um, I'd like to just uh, close out by talking a little bit about dietary and medical uh, therapy for stone prevention. You, if you have a stone former, what are the general dietary changes uh, that any stone former should make? The first thing we tell them is to drink plenty of fluids. And we encourage them really to drink anything that they like with the exception of dark colas. Dark colas which have phosphoric acid in them are not good for stone formers. In contrast, colas that ha are light, such as 7-Up, uh, Sierra Mist, and so forth, typically have citric acid as opposed to phosphoric acid and could potentially be uh, good at preventing stones, especially if it's a diet version as opposed to a non-diet version that it has too much corn syrup in it. The second thing is to limit the sodium to 1500 milligrams a day. The third thing is to increase the amount of dietary citrate. Dietary citrate comes in two forms, citric acid and potassium citrate. So foods that are rich in these include oranges, tomatoes, melons, lemons, and limes. And then the fourth thing is to take an adequate amount of calcium. 1200 milligrams a day of calcium will help keep the bones healthy and also decrease the risk of stones. Now, who gets a metabolic workup and, and when should that be done? We typically recommend a metabolic workup for anyone has, who has multiple stones or people with a family history. Indeed, now that we use CT scan to diagnose stones, the majority of patients either have more than one stone on CT or have a family history. So it would be relatively uncommon not to perform a metabolic evaluation. Let's talk about a couple of common conditions that can lead to stone formation. How do you manage hypercalciuria? With hypercalciuria, our first step is to look at the sodium in the urine. Commonly, the sodium will be high, and we'll start off with sodium restriction and a fish oil supplement. Fish oil has been shown to improve reabsorption of calcium and decrease hypercalciuria. So sodium restriction and fish oil supplementation would be the first step. We would then see the patient back about three to four months later with a repeat 24-hour urine and consider a thiazide diuretic if they remain hypercalciuric. And about half the patients will resolve, uh, will resolve their hypercalciuria just with sodium restriction and fish oil. How about uh, hyperoxaluria? With hyperoxaluria, our first, first step is to confirm that they're taking in an adequate amount of calcium. For example, if they eat broccoli, we'll ask them, do they put cheese on their broccoli? If they eat strawberries, you put cream on your strawberries. The goal being to bind the oxalate in the bowel rather than allowing its absorption and excretion in the urine. The second step would be to show them a picture of all the foods rich in oxalate and ask them, is there anything on here that you eat a lot of? Often they'll say, I eat a lot of nuts or a lot of spinach, and we'll try to encourage moderation. After dietary interventions, we would repeat a 24-hour urine test in three to four months and consider vitamin B6 if the urinary oxalate remains high. We start at 50 milligrams a day and titrate up to 200 milligrams if needed, monitoring the response on the 24-hour urine test.
vitamin B6 decreases the endogenous production of oxalate and can be helpful for those in whom dietary measures are insufficient. Finally, how about the uric acid stone former? What's the best way to prevent uh, uric acid stones? The first step is protein moderation. We counsel patients that whether it's fish, poultry, red meat, the portion size is important and recommend that each portion size should be about the size of a pack of cards. The next most important thing is looking at the urine pH and using a potassium citrate supplement to titrate the pH up to a target of about 6.5. These two things are most important. We typically use allopurinol only as a second line measure, primarily in those who have hyperuricosemia, not only hyperuricosuric. Well, that was great. I think that was a very uh, comprehensive session on uh, uh, the endourologic and other uh, management of uh, stone disease. Uh, We heard a little bit about uh, dietary uh, management of stone disease. Um, I would uh, certainly like to thank uh, Dr. Manga for spending this time with us and uh, uh, really uh, answering um, uh, all of the questions in in a very informative uh, way. I'd also like to thank uh, you, the audience, for uh, listening, uh, and I encourage you all to tune into our uh, further podcast, which will be uh, upcoming uh, in the next few months. Uh, for more information, um, you can always visit the uh, AUA University at uh, www.auanet.org uh, university. Thank you very much. Thank you.